you rise because the people that mentor you, know you, value your work, are going to bring you along with them. So sometimes it makes more sense to have loyalty to a person or a group of people that are your mentors, your advisors, the people that you trust. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Fi Show, but I could not be doing this thing alone, so let's check in with my awesome co-host, Justin. What's up, man? You know, not as exciting this week, kind of keeping things local, heading up to uh, Portland, Maine, though, this weekend for a nice little festival. So, you know, not just sitting on the couch. How about yourself, Cody? Well, I just actually came back from a pretty fun weekend. I went to the Florida Georgia Line concert on Friday and then hung out at the lake house on Saturday and Sunday. So overall, awesome weekend. Awesome. You're talking about going to a concert reminded me that just this past week, I went to a Blink-182 Little Wayne concert. And speaking of awesome collaborations, we had a great guest on today that has just such a storied background, much like those great artists, but a little bit different space. I mean, she's been on CNBC, PBS, CNN, Reuters, you know, she's interviewed all the big dogs, the Tony Robbins of the world. Just a really awesome backstory. But let's don't tell everything. Bobby, take it away. I would say that started pretty early on. My dad was a Wall Street guy and my siblings and I got very early lessons about money just in day-to-day stuff, much like I do with my, I have a 12-year-old today. And I remember having to put together a budget that he would literally sit us in his study. He had a little study with a couch and we would sit there and he would not give us an allowance per se. We would present to him and we'd have to do it for sort of the semester of school, how much money we felt we needed. We had to show him the breakdown of where we needed the money for. And I always underestimated because when you're asking for something for so many months, it seemed like a really big number. So that was one of my challenges, but he would then give us the money for the semester and then that would be it. And we were done. So that's kind of my earliest memory of really talking about it. But I think it was always a conversation because my father wanted us to understand how the financial markets worked, even as kids, so we could understand what he did. Because we thought he was a bank teller for a while. He was actually an investment banker, but we didn't really understand the difference. (laughs) So he was working on us early on. And so one thing I'm curious about is because we have a lot of people come on who have very different backgrounds where either they were kind of low income or never talked about money. And they have this kind of thing inside them where they're trying to just do better than what their parents did or or just kind of make up for that slow start. Do you see any negatives with the way you're raised? I mean, obviously, it's awesome to have a parent who's talking to you about financial things. But is there anything you look back on and think, "Ooh, that maybe actually hurt me a little bit? I think it's really important to understand how fortunate I've been. So I would never use the word negative. I think everyone in their life has their struggles. And even, you know, someone with infinite finances, which I certainly don't have, is going to have their own day-to-day struggles. So I, but I would never say that it's a negative. I think that I've been so fortunate. So I don't like that word for anything like that. That's not to say I don't have struggles. As I mentioned earlier, I always under budgeted because I just felt so guilty about taking this money from my dad. It sounded like so much money. And they always had us, we had jobs. I had my first job at age 15. I remember I had this polyester yellow uniform. I made minimum wage at the Wyckoff Bakery in Wyckoff, New Jersey. (laughs) And I had to memorize the price of every baked good. And I was not very good at it. It was very complicated. There was a lot of math, a lot of numbers happening. People, so many people coming in on the weekends wanting different baked goods. And you would see all this chaos that went on behind the scenes. So I was, you know, learning the value of how hard it was to earn money pretty early on. But at the same time, I mean, we have to be honest. I I was very fortunate in that 
it was mandatory in my family to work, but at the same time, I've never experienced not having enough money for the basics and, and things that some people do. So I think that I was taught a very strong work ethic. And we joked before we came on the air that I get chided for my sometimes working over over preparing and and kind of creating more work than needed sometimes because I like to over prepare. And maybe that's some kind of compensation for that. But I definitely feel appreciative. And I, I just don't I just think you can't not be thankful when you grow up with resources. Well, I think your overpreparedness has certainly served you in your career because you have done tons of incredible things that we're not going to get into right now. I kind of want to move a little bit more forward in your story. You mentioned that first job, but could you kind of walk us through like high school, college and your first like real job? So that was my first job, like I said, was at the bakery and I had a series of other jobs. For example, I worked at a department store. I did gift wrapping, which was really fun. You're really working for tips there. So you learn the value of customer service and how important it is to really pay attention to details and to interact with people. I and mean, it's, it's much like being a waitress where you have to, your tip might depend on how much people simply like you and they're paying a crazy amount. It was some ridiculous amount of money for, for wrapping these packages. So to have them pay even more, you have to be really good. So I think I learned a lot there. And then in college, I had jobs. I worked at a place called The Lodge, which was kind of like The Gap, where it was a lot of folding clothes, I would say. And that was also, I mean, it's, you know, it, it sounds basic, but you do have to be very much a perfectionist to constantly be folding and refolding and focus on customer service and helping people and trying to, of course, increase sales. That's always something, an important life skill to learn to work with people, figure out what their need is, what their pain point is, what's holding them back from buying whatever they're looking at and hoping to make that sale, but in a way that they feel good about it and come back. So I think I learned a lot of real life lessons in those jobs in school. My first job was at CNBC out of college. That was my real first job. Having had, I should say I was an intern at CNN the summer before graduating college. So that was a great life experience. And I should mention talking about overcompensating in order to get experience at that internship, which I was very privileged to be able to work there because it didn't pay. So the fact that I was able to work in an unpaid internship over the summer is something that I look back on and I am so appreciative that I had that opportunity to be able to work without pay. Now they do pay interns. I don't know about CNN, but a lot of media companies do pay interns now, which is a good thing. But I went and worked on overnights at CNN as an intern because that's where you could get the most experience. During the day, they didn't really need that much help. But if you went in on the overnight shift, it was very empty and they were desperate for help and they would give you more to do. And so I was able to leave CNN with actual clips of stories that I had written that went on the air that were read by the anchors on the CNN programs. And that was huge in getting that first job at CNBC and having that experience, which I would not have gotten if I didn't go to work at midnight, which was really kind of not the most fun thing between your junior and senior year of college. And when you were looking to go to college, what was kind of the decision-making process like? What did you end up majoring in? And then, you know, student debt is always such a hot topic. Was there any student debt involved? Just kind of wrapping up that part of your story. Again, I was just incredibly fortunate. I did not have student debt. My parents were able to pay for it. So I just have to be really appreciative of that. I do know that one thing that my family has done is that through generations, I know that my grandfather had put aside money while my father was building his business. I know that my grandfather had put aside money. And then, so if you do that, I think that's something I recommend that sometimes the parents are not always in the position at the time to save money. So the grandparents can help contribute. We didn't have 529s then. But I think that combination of multi-generational ecosystems with money is something that can be really, really helpful. And in fact, my father, not only was he, and my mother too, my mother's no longer with us, not only was he so generous and paid for college, 
But also when I, I did finish early, again, a little bit hyper ambitious, he was very generous and gave me the money that he would have spent on tuition in that last semester. And that helped me with a down payment on the studio apartment that I bought at age 23, which is ultimately led to the fact that I can live in New York City now because I was able to flip real estate throughout my years into what's now a family size apartment in Manhattan. But it started with a studio, a very modest studio apartment in New York City at age 23 that I bought in part with the money that my dad let me keep that had been earmarked for college because I finished early. I also had the money from the jobs we talked about. Wow. Okay. So you just threw down a whole lot of stuff we can talk about. And honestly, it was more than I was expecting to talk about, but I really want to kind of dive through your twenties and understand and realize the types of things you were doing for money, the skills you were acquiring. So are you still working at, was it CNBC? Was that straight out of school? Yes. CNBC was my first real job out of school. And so at that time, you're also flipping real estate. Like, what else are you doing for money? It just seems like you're doing everything. <laughs> flipped a few apartments over the years. I wasn't flipping constantly, but I did buy that with the intention that I could not afford to rent in New York City long term. It just It's just exorbitant here. But the real estate market was really in a slump. So this was the early 90s. And in fact, the market was going down when I bought. And my dad, who, as you can gather, is a very smart investor, he said to me, look, you." And, I, and by the way, I also lived at home, I should say. I bought at 23, graduated school at 22, lived at home in between again, saving money at home. So I was commuting to my first job. So I wasn't paying rent again, saving money to do that. And so my dad basically came to me. He's like, this rent thing, I don't want you, you know, the roommate thing, it's just never, what happens often in New York is you have a lot of roommates and very often you have no choice. So because your parents don't live in the area, fine. But I had a choice. And if you get into the roommate and rent thing, it can be forever because how can you save when you're paying such exorbitant rent? It's crazy. The rents here are literally bananas. So he felt strongly that I should buy and the studio apartment, I'll tell you, it was $90,000. And so I was able to save the down payment because the real estate market was in such a slump. And this was, again, not a super fancy studio apartment. And the feeling was even if it went down in value, I would not be leveraged enough that I would have to sell. So I could wait it out was the idea. But the market did, in fact, go down. And I have a friend that then bought the same studio apartment on a higher floor. Get this, guys. A year later, you want to know the number? I would love to. (laughs) She bought it for $67,000. And it was nicer. And it was nicer, guys. (laughs) And she flipped it for more. She did better than I did. So, I mean, the market went down. But I still did fine. I did fine in the end. I I ended up being there seven years. I think it's always interesting how you know, all of us in this space, we tend to have a little bit better position than maybe the average person. But yet, a lot of times we're also like pretty hard on ourselves. And that's kind of funny to hear you talk about like, you kind of still kicking yourself probably a little bit that your friend was able to get a little bit nicer apartment. (laughs) And she would never have known about it if it wasn't for (laughs) me. Like she was visiting me. And she worked with me at CNBC. And she's like, wait, this is a good deal. And so she started shopping around and the market had also had continued to go down. So I was buying into a falling market, which is a very big risk, right? And so she's buying to this falling market. And then it was really interesting. It it goes to, and this is interesting for real estate people that listen, when you're investing in real estate is know who your seller is. She was buying from this person that was selling and they forgot to hit mute on the phone. So she overheard the person saying, Oh, I finally got someone that might buy this apartment. I got to get rid of this apartment. I got to get rid of this apartment. Now she's got this inside information and she knew she had someone that really had to sell. So she was able to get this incredible price. Uh, I I was happy for her, but you know, she got it even more than the market should have been. And she got this amazing deal on a really cute studio on a higher floor than mine and all that. So but that's okay. 
And we ate mac and cheese, by the way, for 99 cents, just so you know. So, I mean, obviously the macaroni sounds a little childish, but you were obviously making some really big decisions. You've bought this apartment, like you're, you know, way ahead of your peers as far as those kind of decisions. But I also heard that directly after buying this house, you maybe kind of splurged a little bit on a big, on like a $3,000 trip. Um, close, close. I, what I did was I then took out a home equity loan to <laughs> pay for a Hamptons share. So that wasn't so smart. I mean, I eventually paid it off, but yeah. Because, you know, I didn't want to ask my dad for the money and I wanted a Hampton share. And so I had a lot of equity in the apartment and I was able to get a home equity line of credit. So that's what I did. So I really want to hop back to kind of the career part. So you're working at CNBC doing what exactly? So I started as what's called a news associate. And that's basically a grunt. So you Xerox. There was Xeroxing at the time. You bring the producer's scripts, you put in the graphic orders. There was a machine that would generate the stock market numbers, like right before they'd go on the air, you would hit like refresh, things like that. You were basically, you know, an assistant to everybody. You'd run around just helping everybody get the show going and you would do every third hour. So I would do like, let's say the six o'clock, 6 a.m. show. So you'd get there at like four in the morning and you would be on the six o'clock show, the nine o'clock show and like the noon show. And then you'd be done at like four. And so was this like a job that you absolutely loved and you were just dead set on this career and you were hoping to rank up and this was going to be the thing for the next 40 years? Or what was that whole mindset like? I remember getting my first paycheck and I was talking to this guy who was sort of a seasoned producer who was over it. He was so over it. And I was like, if I never even get promoted from this level, I will be so happy. This is the best job ever. I can't believe they're paying me so much. And I was making $20,000 my first job. I just (laughs) thought it was I was over the moon. I couldn't believe how much money I was making and how fortunate I was. And I just, I love the job. I really love the job. It was really exciting. And I was promoted to being a guest booker, which they often call a segment producer pretty quickly, mostly because somebody quit and I was ready enough. So I was promoted, I think within six months and I, I mean, I was ready, but normally it would have taken longer and it wasn't truthfully. It was more that just there was a spot and I was the best qualified person at that time. So I was very fortunate that I bumped up in salary also pretty soon, but my overhead was low. My over was pretty low. And if you're looking back, what are some of the things you think you did that kind of set yourself apart versus your peers that allowed you to keep progressing? Because I mean, I can tell, obviously, you're a very, you know, kind of high speed personality. But so I don't know if there's any things you can look back on and point to and say, you know, that's what I did above and beyond that set me apart. I constantly do a little bit more than needed. And, and that's something I tell my, my son, my 12 year old all the time is you must always do the extra credit. So as an example, the same friend that bought the apartment at a better price than me. We used to go in together on the weekends and we would, this is early days of CNBC. They didn't have a lot of security and we would, I don't even want to say sneak in because we weren't sneaking in. Nobody minded us coming there. We would just go into the studio and we'd fire up the teleprompter. There'd always be some guy working in MCR, the master control room. And they were nice guys. They'd help us out. And we would just run the teleprompter for each other and just practice being anchors over and over again. Every weekend we would just practice. So we were constantly doing extra things and making sure we got to know the right people and just doing the ex- one extra thing all the time, always doing something extra and always adding skills. That's something I've always done. So another thing I did early on was CNBC, which was part of General Electric at the time, would pay for you to take classes if they were in any way related. So that's when I took the CFP classes is they paid for six classes at NYU and NYU is a little expensive. So it was great. So I took classes at NYU also while I was in my days at CNBC. And that way I would understand the subject matter better. I wanted to understand Even though I wasn't answering the questions, I wanted to know whether the guest was answering completely. Sometimes people answer accurately, but not completely. And so I wanted to understand the difference. 
So I kind of want to hop forward in your story. And I mean, just to give people listening a high level summary, I know that you've interviewed people like Tony Robbins. I think I saw Russell Simmons, Gene Chatsky. You held positions at Reuters as an anchor. You were at PBS, if I'm not mistaken, for a little bit. CNN, CNBC. So obviously these little extra one-off things definitely (laughs) paid off and you just absolutely crushed it. Thank you. But I definitely want to hop forward. I want to talk about that a little bit and then talk about you're not there anymore. And I would love to hear about like that whole mindset, that whole transition. But could you talk about kind of the rest of your career in media? So I learned pretty early on, as much as I love that very first job as a news associate, I did learn pretty on where the power was. And at the end of the day, for me, it was on camera. I'm very shy. It was terrifying when I had to speak in front of actual live people. The camera's not very frightening to me, but actual speaking in front of live people, which is something I've conquered recently, can be intimidating. But at the end of the day, if you don't, if you're not, if your name's not on it and you're just always behind the scenes, for me, that was never going to work. I just felt that there would be cutbacks, there would be different power shifts. And if you are not the one who's getting credit for your work, whether it's a byline, if you're a print reporter or being the on-camera reporter, or some producers get credit, absolutely. There are some very prominent producers that do get on-screen credit. I think it was just became very important to me. So I just decided, I became very headstrong that I needed to find a way to get on camera. So that became a goal. And at CNN, they had said... They would, but they wanted me to work on a different show for a year before I did that, sort of pay my dues a little bit more. And that would have been fine, but an opportunity did come my way to go to PBS and get on air right away. And they offered to pay for my on-camera training. I also spent a year doing on-camera training with somebody, like a, a coach, before they even let me on the air. So I took the PBS opportunity because at the end of the day, a bird in hand. And, you know, at CNN, they were absolutely lovely. Every place I've left has been wonderful. I've had all amicable exits, which is another important lesson. But at the end of the day, the person that was mentoring me there could have left. The person that, that wanted me, you know, you, there's no guarantee. And I had the opportunity at PBS. So I did go to PBS where I was able to be on camera at the Nightly Business Report. And they had a morning business report at the time. And they did pay for training. Again, free education is something everyone should be very tapped into. Wherever you're working, if they offer any free courses in anything, take them. Absolutely. So that was great. But I basically spent a year being told I was going to be on the air and auditioning over and over again. I remember doing a stand-up. Some sports team had gone public and I got an outfit that fit the sports team and I shot it at like a, I found like a baseball mound in New York City or something and it was so beautiful and then they wouldn't air it because they said my hair was messy and it was distracting and so (laughs) it didn't get on the air. So I, I mean, oh my goodness, they put me through the ringer to get on camera. It was really hard. I worked really hard. I was really bad too probably, but eventually I made it. And so the one thing you were kind of talking about there was that, you know, the bird in hand, you get this opportunity and you kind of took it. When you're talking to people, do you have any advice on kind of how far to take loyalty to a company and where to kind of start focusing on yourself? Because, I mean, you've got that immediate need, but then you've got that long-term career and just kind of how you balance that. I love that question. I think it's very precarious. And to some degree, people have to feel out their own situations. I would reframe it and say loyalty to a person. Because at the end of the day, you're hired by a person, not necessarily, I mean, yes, the company, but very often, if we're being honest, you rise because the people that mentor you, know you, value your work, are going to bring you along with them. So sometimes it makes more sense to have loyalty to a person or a group of people that are your mentors, your advisors, the people that you trust. And so maybe think about that. I think companies is is very tricky, especially right now, we have a very strong economy. 
But if things change, there could be cutbacks, there could be layoffs, and some very good people through no fault of their own could find themselves out of a job. I remember after 9-11 where I very foolishly risked my life doing some reporting. It was just stupid. But anyway, just a few months later, Reuters was having layoffs. I wasn't laid off, but I could have been. And think about that. I had only been at the company for a few months. I risked my life going back over police lines, which again was stupid. And yet the company is going to lay me off three months later. It's not worth it. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it is a job. And I think it's important to work your hardest, but to know that it's a company. People is a different thing. Loyalty to people, I think, is very important and very special. If you have a bond with somebody that's mentored you, and or that you are a mentor for, that's something really worth holding on to. So I can tell this is genuine because you did make the decision to say, you know what, screw the company. I'm going on my own. Could you talk about <laughs> that transition, what it was like? And also, I'm actually curious, I'm not exactly sure of the exact timeline of Financial Grown Up, the brand, the book. Now you have a podcast. You have two podcasts, actually. Could you just talk about that whole transformation? So first of all, I definitely would not. The exit from Reuters was extremely amicable. I had been there for 15 years. I had done interviews with every CEO I had basically wanted to do an interview with. I had done infinite interviews about the economy and the Fed and the stock market and all of that. And I was really done. I was done. I was ready for the next adventure. And I just came up with an idea to create a personal brand. I walk a lot in Central Park and I do a lot of brainstorming there. And one day I just thought of the idea of, you know, grownups. And and I thought money grownup was sort of taken and I thought financial grownup. It just rang true to me and it fit with what was sort of top of mind, which was that by this point I was over 40. I met this office and all these young, mainly young women, but young men too, but mainly young women were asking me all this financial advice. And I felt like, wow, everyone's trying to be a grown-up. These kids are all want to be financial grown-ups and I should write a book for them. So the book was really for these young girls that were asking me this advice. And I did conceive it to a large degree as an exit strategy from Reuters. I wanted to do something, but I didn't want to just quit. I wanted to create a personal brand before I left. And so the book was very much sort of the first stake in the ground to do that. But I want to just stress that it was extremely amicable from Reuters to the point where when I had the idea for the book, the first thing I did was go in and meet with the editor-in-chief of Reuters, tell him the idea. I didn't say, and I'm going to leave. But I did say, I have this idea for a book. What do you think? And I made sure to get his buy-in and his support and made sure to check in with all the stakeholders in the company between him, my direct boss, people around me, even the ethics department, the public relations department. And they were all incredibly supportive. I was already doing speaking on their behalf, moderating panels on Reuters' behalf. I would appear on news programs like Fox and Yahoo Finance on Reuters' behalf. And they if anything, stepped that up and supported me. And I, I was at one point on Yahoo Finance once a week as a regular. And they did a lot of extensive coverage of the book because of Reuters. It was it was all very supportive. So I, I do want to stress that, that I did not just kind of ditch the job. But my loyalty, <laughs> at the end of the day, the loyalty is to people, not to a, an anonymous company. But I also was very respectful towards Reuters and everything that they did for me and all the opportunities presented to me. And it was a very amicable and somewhat planned exit. I, th- I think they kind of knew I was leaving. And I think that while they were very happy with me, we got along great, had a lot of opportunities, but they understood. I think it was time. I think 15 years is a really long time to be kind of at the same company doing the same thing. And I visit there. I have a client right across the street at the NASDAQ right now, and I'm going over there next week to visit my friends there and I'll hang out in the office and it's all good. So you've got this 15-year career just at this one company, but you've obviously built this pretty good career for yourself, and you're looking at stepping out on your own. And I'm assuming you have kids at this time? 
Yeah. So I have two stepchildren. One is 22. She just graduated college, Indiana. Very proud of her. She's a great job. I have a 19-year-old stepson who's a sophomore in college. And then I have a 12-year-old son with my husband who is in sixth grade. He's away at camp right now. So you're looking at kind of stepping away from this safe corporate environment to going out on your own. Did you have any kind of gates during that transition period where you're saying, okay, if the side stuff takes off to this point, then I will leave? Or were you full in like knowing I am leaving regardless of what happens? I took three years to plan my exit, guys. Three <laughs> years. Three years of side hustling. And I, what I did is I created multiple income streams. I mean, I did have the book and I created a system to write it where I would drop my son off the earliest possible at a school. I had a specific place that I would go and write and I wouldn't go into work early anymore. I used to go into work really early, be on all the global calls. I just dropped it. And I just worked. I always did my job in full, but I let the people under me do the things that they could do and delegated because I was the head of the the little unit at that time. I don't call little unit. I was the head of business video for the United States. Um, so (laughs) it was was a good job, but I, um, you know, I wasn't on the morning call to London anymore. I had to let some things go, but I absolutely, I had the book. I started doing some corporate ghostwriting that can be very lucrative. That's something Cody knows a lot about with freelancing. You can make (laughs) a lot of money doing that kind of stuff. And I did dip my toe in the water and I was doing more public speaking. When you're with a major media organization like Reuters, you can't really get paid to do moderating and speaking. But first of all, once I was leaving, I set things up far ahead when I, I kind of knew I was leaving that was going to be paid. And I would have just had to forfeit it to charity or something if I didn't leave. But I was doing those things so that I would have a speaking reel, so that I would have contacts and setting everything up and making sure I had a pathway to money. And the other thing, this is something I haven't really talked about, guys. You're going to get a scoop here. Ooh. People should know if you are going to off ramp a job. OK, this is really important. Find out. Make friends with the HR department or look at the seasonal patterns. Reuters is a union shop. It has very seasonal patterns. And every November, pretty much, they have buybacks. They offer buyouts. Sorry, buyouts. They offer buyouts almost every November. So I knew my book was coming out in October. I knew. So it's a union. So I could not be laid off. I was too senior. But I also could potentially be offered a buyout. And sure enough, that November, they did have buyouts. And so, so my book came out October, they had buyouts in November, they asked me to delay. So I delayed until February actually leaving. And we did keep that, you know, that wasn't publicly discussed, but I did know I was going to leave. And so I did leave in February, but I did leave with a package. And I think it's really important that people know that because people only think of it as layoffs. But if you're at a company for more than, let's say five years, and you think they might be having buyouts, Sit tight. Try to get some information from HR. Let them know that you might be willing because they want volunteers. They would always rather have somebody volunteer than have somebody unhappily have to lose their job, right? So if you think you're going to off-ramp anyway, don't just kind of quit in a huff. Be really strategic about it. Make friends with your HR department. Find out what's going on behind the scenes. Find out if maybe they're willing to just create one for you. Maybe they're overstaffed in your area or something. And there might be a nice goodbye package for you. So I was able to do that. I mean, we negotiated, like I said, because I was the head of this department, they did want to rejigger things. And so I stayed a little bit longer than I would have liked to some degree, but I was there till mid-February. I think it'd be proud of me, Bobby, for my exit from my job, but my boss was not very happy about it. I put in my notice the week after we got our bonuses. <laughs> Strategic though. <laughs> Strategic. I, I, I'm proud of you. I think that's fine. 
I kind of want to pivot and steal a question that Tim Ferriss asks his guests often. And I'm just curious about someone like you who's a high performer, high speed, always on top of things, getting things done. Do you have any kind of like rituals or routines or like how do you maintain work-life balance? It just sounds like you're go, go, go all the time, but there has to be something that you're doing to prevent burnout. So first of all, I do go through phases of burnout and I recently came out of one. And one of the reasons, one of the ways I came out of it was I did make the decision. I cut back the Financial Grown-Up podcast from three fully produced episodes a week to two episodes, one of which is not as highly produced. So sometimes you do actually have to cut the workload. So I just want to be very transparent and honest about that. In terms of my day-to-day, something very important to me is that I walk in Central Park. I live about three blocks from Central Park, and that's something that I do as often as I can, even when it's really cold. And that's where I get all of my best ideas. It's also a great way for me to see my friends because we're not spending money and we're not eating and we're also exercising and we get some of the best ideas. I have a friend who started a whole business. She just, it just came to her over one of our walks and she's like, what do you think about this? And now she's got a thriving business over this concept that she came up on one of our walks. So, and I run it in New York. It's a very small town, New York city, believe it or not, because we walk everywhere. So we are very social and we run into people more than a lot of cities where everyone's in their car. It might be smaller, but New York city, we're walking everywhere pretty much. So you run into people when you go walking in the park. And I think it's really good for my mood. I think socializing in that way, just running into friends and having that casual conversation with people that wasn't planned can be really good. So me and Cody, this is kind of a a little bit of a subject change, but me and Cody both live in Massachusetts and I live in Boston. Cody used to work in Boston and it's, you know, considered one of these high cost of living cities. And most people wouldn't think when they step away from their normal job that since the job is connecting them to that city, you know, once they step away from that job, no reason to live in these high cost of living cities. But I've kind of had some different articles and stuff about how these high cost of living cities are actually not that different as far as cost and that there's so many more opportunities there. I'm just curious what your take is on sticking around in New York, even though you don't necessarily have to be there to do the work you're doing. So this is a constant conversation, and I'm glad you asked that. We'll see where we are in five years. I love Florida. So it's been a little bit of an internal discussion because I really just, I do love Florida. I love warm weather. It's more a weather thing than a money thing for me here. But I think at the end of the day, what my husband and I have have come back to over and over again, because New York City is really hard, especially with three kids. And we did not plan on that. We did have custody of my stepkids unexpectedly. So we had three kids, not one in the city. And it's worked out great because they're doing amazing. But it wasn't planned. I don't know that we would have planned with three kids. Again, everything worked out great. It comes down to people and family. And at the end of the day, I was born about 10 blocks from where I live right now, even though I actually grew up in New Jersey because my parents couldn't afford the city. But they moved back after we went to college. But they did move out of the city at the time. But this is where my friends are. This is where my family is. This is where my roots are. And I think when you ask people why they live in a certain place, that's usually what it comes down to is this is my home. And I just don't know where else I would live. Ultimately, I joke about Florida. Maybe someday we'll be able to have a second home there or something because it's just warmer and I like it. My in-laws are there. I like my in-laws. But at the end of the day, you want to be home. I, I love my home. It's as simple as that. So when you are making this transition, sorry to hop back into this, but I'm just curious about it because you are such a planner. It seems like you're a very calculated decision maker. You're saying that in such a nice way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being totally serious. I mean, you're, you're just on top of things. Did you have like a ballpark estimate of how much you'd be making and like how close to that number were you once you quit that job and you were just doing the side hustle stuff? Okay, so let's be okay. This is middle age versus you guys are super young, which Joe (laughs) Salstihai, who's my partner on Money with Friends, always says, don't compare the middle to the beginning. So 
the numbers worked out very well because of a harsh reality, which we talk about more and more. But as a mom of a young kid, my kid, my son was, let's see, seven-ish, seven to eight when I started the three-year journey. And then it's been a couple of years since then. So I'd been working seven or eight years with a child. The truth is that even with a really good salary in New York, not an amazing salary, but a good, you know, on-camera working journal salary, after I pay the nanny, who we did pay above board, we paid her, we paid taxes, we paid everything legit with the nanny. That's just our belief. A lot of people don't always do that, but we did that. And then my husband does well. And so I was in his tax bracket. And then the general costs of working, you know, work wardrobe and, you know, you do eat lunch out and all that stuff. I wasn't actually really making a profit. That's the dirty secret of a lot of moms of young kids. And I fully advocate working even if you don't make a profit to some degree because you keep your place. I was still funding a 401k. I was still providing health insurance for my family because it was a union job. We had really good insurance. So I was doing those things and I was progressing in my career. I was more than keeping my place. I was advancing. So a lot of good things were happening and I loved my job. It was a really cool job. And my son was proud of me, which meant the world to me. So it's worth working, but there wasn't really much bottom line there, guys. So transition to the last two years, right now I've made a little bit more in top line than I did when I was there. And there's no guarantee of that, but I've been able to do, we can talk more about what it, where my main income streams are now, but I've been able to have income streams that are above, slightly above what I had at Reuters. And remember now I'm not paying for childcare because I can pick my child up at school and he'll soon be able to walk to and from school independently. And I have a a business where I can, a lot of the expenses go against my business. So always legit, but I still have those business deductions. So there's a lot more bottom line on, you know, a little more top line than before, but I'm keeping so much more. There's just no comparison. It's life-changing the amount of money that I'm keeping versus when I had the corporate job, just because of the way childcare is so expensive and getting rid of that childcare bill was everything. And you kind of hinted at those income streams that you were talking about that you could dig into a little more. I would love to hear that. And also similar to the questions we've been asking before, when you're going into it, what did you think would be your main money maker? And you know, now that you can look back on it, were those income streams actually the strongest? So going into it, I thought that I would make some money on the book, which I did, but I spent a lot of it promoting it and I kind of knew that would happen. I did not plan to do a podcast, I should say. Joe Salcihai talked me into it. That's what I'm going to, I'm going to blame him. Podcasts are not huge money makers. It's just, you know, there's a trickle of money, but it's not, that's just not it. I thought I would make a lot more doing freelance writing, which I just didn't love. And it's not that lucrative. It can be, but it wasn't the right fit for me to do as a main income stream. I did do some corporate ghostwriting and that's can be very lucrative. Again, I really didn't enjoy it. I thought a big income stream would be speaking like keynote speeches. That was at first, but I really wanted to be home with my son. It was really hard to be away. And I ended up sort of accidentally getting some opportunities to do what I now, I don't know what to call it other than brand journalism. It's sponsored content. And I've had several really large clients that has been my primary income stream is, is basically doing it's freelance anchoring, but it's, and I also, by the way, I do freelance anchoring. You'll, you'll see me pop up on local news too. And that's really fun. And, and is pays well, not huge, but it pays pretty well, you know, similar to what a Reuters job would pay as a day rate, but the corporate stuff, which is really advertising and sponsored content. I enjoy so much. The quality of the content is so strong. What these companies put into it, the people you work with are so smart. 
it's really the best and brightest. It's, it's a great industry to be part of. And I really enjoy working with companies, helping to get their message out and helping to highlight their executives' expertise in different areas. And I've been able to travel the country through that. And just lots of really fun stuff. I've had amazing experiences going to conferences. I've also done, which I never thought was even a thing, I've emceed conferences. And that can be really lucrative. And I never, that never occurred to me that that was something I would do. I thought I would be the speaker, but it's also a lot of fun to be welcome everyone and, and introducing the speakers and then moderating the panels afterwards and debriefing the speakers. It's, it's really, I enjoy it so much. So I've had a lot of fun with that. And those are just, you know, a lot more lucrative than, you know, writing articles for me. And I'm also just not the best print writer, even though I did have a column at Reuters, I had a globally syndicated column on millennial personal finance issues. They edited a lot. I got a lot of help from the wonderful team there. I, I'm not the best writer. I'm a good writer, but I'm not the best writer. It doesn't come so naturally to me. So, and How did you get into the branded sponsorship? And if somebody else was wanting to kind of follow in your footsteps, what advice do you have for them? A lot of it has to do with just having built the career that I did. A lot of them, are, they're coming to me. I do work with an agent, so he can be a, a liaison. But ultimately, it's, it's my resume and that they already know me in the space. So it can be challenging. I would say it's kind of a second career if you want to have that credibility. And and I will tell you, the clients do care, some of them at least, that I do have a CFP because it does give me that additional credibility in addition to the journalism background that I do understand the material because some of it can be very cerebral. Sometimes I'm interviewing an executive about hedge funds and, and complicated trading strategies, and they do want to be confident that I understand the material. Another client, we were traveling to different conferences interviewing CEOs, and they were just you know, I had no warning, no preparation. Sometimes they're just sitting down in front of me and you have to be ready on your feet with it. So it is a skill set that I think does take years to develop and people should absolutely do that if they want to get into it. But I do think you have to put in the time and really have the career credibility to do that, depending on who you're working with. I've been very lucky to have really amazing large company clients. How hard were you working when you started working for yourself versus in the job? I work so much harder than I ever did. And I think that's often true, that people have this concept that an entrepreneur lifestyle is a certain way. But the truth is, if you're going to be successful, you probably will work harder for yourself than you ever will for anyone else. One thing I want to ask that we really haven't covered yet, because this is something that me and Cody can't really give any expertise on, is for people who have young kids like you do and you're, and you're raising them, do you have any advice for raising a child to kind of come out with those strong money skills. I mean, I know you're used to giving advice to the 20 somethings that are looking to be an adult, but when you're looking at raising your own kid, any advice for the fam listeners out there? Well, first of all, I'm glad you asked this. So I'm doing okay. I think with my 12 year old, I'm, I'm struggling with my stepkids who are 19 and 22. And in fact, that struggle is the inspiration for the book that I'm writing right now called Raising Financial Grownups, which is about how to teach kids basically 16 to 26 about money and the real world skills, like getting their first paycheck. We've been working, my stepdaughter's onboarding for her job and going through all the health insurance options. And I'm explaining the HSA, how that's different from an FSA. I mean, I get very passionate about HSAs because I didn't have that. (laughs) So I get really excited. I'm like, you don't understand. It's tax-free in and out. It doesn't get better than that. And she just looks at me like, okay, I guess I'll do the HSA, (laughs) whatever. But um, for the little one, we have a lot of fun. He's kind of used to it because he grew up with me doing this. And we make lessons every day through life, whether it's we were going to a cooking class and we walked by the, the, the sort of mall in New York City and there was a Gucci store. 
And he said, oh, mom, I heard that in the in the music video or some music that he, some song that he was listening to. He heard of Gucci. He says, why don't we ever shop there? And I'm like, oh, I, don't, I don't have any Gucci stuff. So it's just not my thing. It's it's totally cool if people are into it. But anyway, I don't have Gucci. So, so I'm like, well, let's go check it out. So we go into Gucci. And I said, well, what do you like? And because he's like, maybe I'll get you a present, mommy. Okay. So, <laughs> so we pick up, we pick up this scarf among other things. And I did a whole Instagram story on this. It's, it's hysterical, but we pick up this Gucci scarf and he looks at it. It's like got all the monogram G's on it. He looks at the price and it was 400 something like 425. And I said, well, what do you think about that? He says, mom, I can totally get this for you so much cheaper. I was like, oh, where? He's like, mom, the gap. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I totally think they're going to have a G scarf too. And we could go there and it'll be just as nice. I was like, yeah. So I was really proud of him. He's cute. But, you know, we just, we may, I also give him micro decisions. Like I'll say, okay, we can walk to your next activity and have a snack or, you know, we can take a taxi, you know, choose one or the other. So he can make that micro decision about where he wants to put the budget for that day's afternoon. Whether he feels he doesn't want to walk, he's going to take a taxi and forego the snack. Or whether he really wants to, you know, take the taxi because he's just really tired and he's going to make that choice and maybe not have a snack. So I think micro decisions and empowering children to understand that you sometimes have to make choices and there's, you know, decisions and how money works is a really good thing. We also, with our savings, we do the savings jars that Ron Lieber has and the opposite of spoiled. And we recently dumped out the savings one and we took it to the bank and I thought the bank would have an automatic counting machine and they didn't. So we learned how to roll coins together, <laughs> which was actually kind of funny. He was like, he's, he's rolling the coins at the bank and the lady was so amused and he's kind of rolling them and he's like, this is actually kind of soothing. This is kind of cool. We're just sitting there, you know, at the table rolling our, you know, pennies and yeah, we did it. And I think he had $47 or something. It was good. It's pretty good. Yeah. So Bobby, one of the last things before we get into the final few questions, just in the interest of time, I really want to ask you is, as someone who's kind of done messaging their whole career, like your job was to get information out to the masses in the most digestible way possible. What do we need to do as content creators to actually get people to start caring about personal finance? Oh, that's such a good question. I wish I could ask you guys could teach me a lot about that. You do such a wonderful job. I look, I'm a fan of storytelling. I think it's important to make it relatable. So for example, you asked me about my son and I tell you a story about Gucci versus the gap. I think that if you make it relatable and you make it a memorable story, that's going to stick with people more than just lecturing them about how something works. If you, you know, if you want to teach them about an HSA, tell them about your friend and their experience with it, things like that. It's always going to be a lot more memorable and we'll stick with them. All right, Bobby. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. A lot of good tidbits. You have a, a really cool career and backstory, but obviously we can't cover everything here. So if people want to get more information and follow along with your story, where's the best place for them to, to look and reach out? So my website is bobbyrebell.com. That's B-O-B-B-I-R-E-B-E-L-L.com. From there, you can get to pretty much everything. One question we love to ask all of our guests is if you could give the listeners one little tidbit of information to help them on their path to financial independence, what would it be? Always be learning. Keep learning. Always through your whole life. Take every class someone will give you. Take every course someone will give you. I am also an advocate of the focused course. So when I was studying for the CFP, I paid for the top premium course, which had in-person and you could get a check-in from the professor. You could also have online where you could play it over and over again. I do believe in the value of investing in courses and education throughout your life. So always 
always be learning. And certainly if your employer will pay for courses, take as much as you can. Alrighty. Well, now it's time for you to learn something. And that's going to be what the final question is. And I know you're not prepared. Cody's not prepared. No one is ever prepared for this <laughs> wild card question. Are you ready? I am not ready, but you're going to ask it anyway. <laughs> well, obviously you're not. <laughs> so I know you've got, you know, you got three kids, you've got the young one. Kids are always interesting to me because they're so smart, but yet at the same time, they're so gullible with all these random things. I want to hear what's the like funniest lie that you ever told your son that you made him believe. Oh my goodness. I don't know. I don't lie to my child. I'll tell you a better one though. I will tell you. So my husband, when we were dating, totally straight faced, I made these brownies that were full fat, everything in them. I looked at him straight in the eye and I was like, these are totally fat free. And he brought them to the office and it was like, oh my God, my girlfriend made these brownies. They are totally fat free. And everyone thought they were so good. And they all believed me. <laughs> I was thinking that was going to be a pot brownie story, but. <laughs> I would not tell that on this show if that was true. I'll take that as a consolation answer. That's that's good enough. I don't know. I'll, I, if you gave more time, but I don't, I don't know if I lie to my children. I don't know about that. <laughs> What's a little white lies just to get them to, you know, to kind of act right. Like, so I had a third grade teacher who would literally like, so something happens, something goes missing, whatever, she would bring all of us in and she would say, like have a phone in her hand and be like, if somebody doesn't tell me what happened, like I'm calling the cops and they're bringing a lie detector test right now. And as a little kid, you just start freaking out. You know? <laughs> oh my gosh. All right, Bobby. Well, this has just been an incredible episode. You have done so many things and you are a true testament to that skill building is one of the best things that you can possibly do. We talk about that so much on the Fi Show, but you're a testament that that is absolutely true. And we also learned from the wildcard question that you're a genuinely good person who doesn't lie to her kids. So <laughs> thank you so much again for spending the time with us today and coming on the show. Thank you. Well, Cody, that was another episode that had just a little bit of everything from a corporate career to children to real estate to, you know, the upbringing. What did you think of the episode? What I really liked about the episode was that it really reinforces a lot of the things that we always talk about week after week on The Fi Show. Bobby is not satisfied with just being mediocre, middle of the pack. She's always gaining new skills. She always has that one step ahead of the competition. And clearly, that's definitely lent to a lot of her success. Yeah, I mean, you could just really feel just the way she's talking about how high energy she is and how you can just follow that along her entire life, even as a, you know, an unpaid intern coming in in the middle of the night to do shows because she knew that gave her a leg up for the next job. And so she was just always going above and beyond. And that's one thing to remember with this whole path towards financial independence is, you know, some people might look at it as being lazy because you're not wanting to work, but it is definitely not a lazy path. And something that I was a little bit blind to, and I'm sure you are as well, Justin, because neither of us are mothers or fathers yet, is she was saying her bottom line when she was working full time was almost nothing because she had to pay for expensive childcare in New York City. There are all these other ancillary expenses. She couldn't write off expenses against her business because she was working for Reuters. Now that she's self-employed, she can do write-offs. She can pick her kid up from school. She can do stuff at home that needs to be done instead of hiring it out. And I just thought that was kind of an interesting perspective that you or I don't really have because we're not paying for a nanny. We're not paying for other random family costs that may be associated with having a family when you have a full-time job as well. So I just thought that was a really interesting point for someone who might be thinking about jumping into a career that maybe pays a little bit less than a corporate career, but there are a lot of side benefits that you might not even realize. Yeah. I mean, talking about the childcare thing, I know around the Boston area, there's people I work with who it's not uncommon to pay $2,500 to $3,000 per child to go to daycare. And when you think about that, I mean, that's more money than I spend to live for all expenses. That's including rent. That's everything. That's to watch a kid 
a few hours a day. That's not like a 24 hour thing. And so, you know, the thing to consider there is a, is it cheaper to send them to daycare or is it cheaper just to literally hire a human being to live in your house? Cause sometimes it is. And then kind of what she did, is it then even maybe cheaper to just either not work or to work in a way where you're working for yourself, where you can be at home or work remote or whatever that looks like. All that is to say, when you're making these financial decisions, don't just assume, hey, everybody's dropping their kids off at daycare. That must be the right thing to do. Like, just throw a little math at it and make sure that that logic, you know, actually holds true. And I mean, speaking of kids, Justin. Whoa. What is it, Cody? It's the call to action, man. That thing keeps coming back every single week. And this week's call to action is to find that little meditative thing that you can kind of throw into your daily routine to keep you sane. Bobby was saying that even she hits levels of burnout, but going in walks in Central Park, hanging out with friends, doing those types of things kind of just takes her out of the stress of that work life or out of that side hustle entrepreneur life. So find what that thing is and set a little bit of time aside each and every day to just get into that meditative state and bring yourself back to equilibrium. Totally love that call to action, Cody. And I've totally loved this entire episode. And if you love this episode and want to get a little bit deeper into the weeds and, you know, get on some of those links that we're going to post out there for more information, you can do that at thefyshow.com slash Bobby. Now that's B-O-B-B-I, B-O-B-B-I. And as always, if you want to be a part of the most awesome, inclusive, top-notch group you're ever going to find online, you can do that at thefyshow.com slash community, which links to our Facebook group. And as always, if you want us to keep getting on these high-caliber guests, please go out there, leave the five-star reviews, leave the comments, leave the thumbs up, share this thing. We appreciate all the love. Thank you guys for listening. See you on next week's episode of The Fi Show. 